guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This is part two of our interview with physical preparation coach James Smith, where we continue our discussion surrounding his latest book, Applied Sprint Training. I hope you guys really enjoy part two. Just something I wanted to, to touch on. It's nearly more so for myself, but the listeners are going to benefit from it too. I always hear, like, you know, and I've read some of Charlie's stuff too, like, so, and Charlie also talks about long to short, short to long. Can you just give, like, a, a good sort of summary on exactly what is short, short to long and long to short? Now, I, I have a fair idea myself, and I understand short to long pretty well, but exactly how does long to short work? Maybe go through both for the listeners, because I think a lot of listeners don't know what long to short, short to long means in terms of speed development. Sure, well, I, as you know, I go into some detail in the book regarding that, so yeah. that anyone who's interested can see that in the book, and it, it's really quite simple. If we take the competitive event and we use that as our point of perspective, so let's say the 100 meters in track and field, a short to long approach is quite, both the vernacular is literal. So short to long is a preparatory scheme in which the distances, the sprint distances performed in training gradually increase towards the distance of the competitive event. So they start shorter and they progress towards 100 meters. And in a long to short, the training distances start much longer than the 100 meters, sometimes as far out as 600 meters, and they gradually become shorter towards 100 meters. And the interesting thing with intensity as it pertains to sprinting is the slope that occurs, we, we look at it as a bell curve. So intensity is increasing to its, if, if we take the world's elite, the world's elite in sprinting as a stable platform from which we may draw comparisons, we know from zero up to approximately the 60 to 70, in Bolt's case, even beyond 70 meter mm-hmm. mark, acceleration is occurring. The, the, of course, the bulk of acceleration, if the effort is maximal, occurs at the 30 meter mark, and then the slope lessens substantially, yet it still increases up to that point in which maximum velocity is reached. And then from that point, it begins to decrease. So the intensity is climbing, 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 climbing until the point in which maximum velocity is reached, and then it is decreasing, 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 decreasing. So when we draw this bell curve with maximum velocity at the top, and we begin to draw lines parallel to horizontal axis, what we find is these lines will intersect with the graph of our bell curve at interesting points. So on the one end on the way up, around the 10 meter mark, in terms of the velocity that's achievable, we continue that line along the parallel to the horizontal axis. The next point in our graph that it intersects is something way out around the 600 meter mark. And we continue to draw these lines parallel to the horizontal axis and we see the corresponding relationship in velocity between these very short distances and these substantially longer sprint efforts. And, and of course, I provide Charlie's graph in my book that shows this. Yeah, the bell curve, yeah. Right? So, so what this shows us is that if we are going to begin at a lower intensity and work towards the high, higher intensity of the competition distance or something close to it, then there's two directions which we can approach the competition distance that allow us to begin with low intensity work. So whether it's the long to short or the short to long, we're beginning with work intensity that is much less than what it will conclude at when we're training at distances that are at or near the competition distance. Could, could you give, because uh, when when you hear long to short, short to long, I think some people get this idea that like, okay, so long to short, 
all our training is starting at you know three six hundred meter. We're not we're not doing any acceleration. We're not doing any max velocity. Right. And, and then vice versa with the short long. All we're doing is like accelerations, and we're not doing any uh, speed endurance, special endurance. But of course, like you all, you alluded to, like this is all under the umbrella of vertical integration, where and vertical integrations where everything is being trained all the time. It's just the pr- proportionality of volumes and intensities to specific qualities is is what is is what is um changed and uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? organized really. Uh, so could you maybe allude to that, like, a, a, maybe give an example of a setup of each, like what what maybe a, a weekly cycle may look with one or the other. Indeed. So. Again, to reference Charlie's work, because in, in Charlie's SPP, inside the SPP lecture, he I don't know if he realized it at the time, but he actually outlined a, a revolutionary method of sports preparation that applies to every sport in reference to the organization of proportionality and contribution of relevant elements. And in... I. I this brings me to where I must plug the the next book that I'll be coming out with will reflect global training load management. Oh wow! And 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 I'm and I'm very much referencing Charlie's work specific to the inside the SPP because it, it explains almost everything any coach needs to know. However, that's predicated upon the coach having enough requisite understanding. To, to assimilate what has been stated. And, and so in that context of the long to short, short to long, we, we know that, and you mentioned it, the, the, the volume of the training load cannot be substantiated exclusively based upon one form of running in the case of the track and field, field sprinter. So the short to long we know it's constituted by a much higher volume of accelerations. However, it cannot be substantiated, the load volume, exclusively upon accelerations. Nor can these long special endurance runs that the long to short athlete is performing substantiate the totality of the work performed. And the reason why is because we're, we're attempting to prepare the athlete to have the ability to peak repeatedly over the course of the competition calendar. So what we must do then is examine what is substantiating the base of the training load volume because the contents of the training load volume is what provides us with the knowledge as to how long we're going to be able to extend working efforts specific to the competition activity. So in the case of the 100 meters, we understand there are various contributing mechanisms. It's not only a matter of acceleration. It's not only a matter of speed endurance. It's not only a matter of maximum velocity. It's not only a matter of explosive starts. It's all of these. And in the case of major competitions, in which case you have multiple rounds to qualify, we, have, we now have a task-specific work capacity to repeat the entire event multiple times and have that represent the lowest possible cost, and the way we do that is being as fast as possible. In fact, I wrote up a summary that sort of pertains to that, which, which Christopher Glazer posted on his site, Freelap, in which I, may, I, I drew essentially a conclusion as to the most recent world championships between Usain Bolt and 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 Justin Gatlin, in which case I I reference sort of this context of these points, and so so and I and I state that because Gatlin had a relatively poor performance in the final and ultimately lost to Bolt, and I, I go into some detail regarding the implications of tone and how they affected the rounds in the case of the training load volume of the long to short and the short to long, we accept that, okay, we cannot make our living on one style of running alone. It has to be a aggregate of different forms of sprint training in order to enhance the robustness of 
the taxonomy of the load volume such that when it comes time to start competing now, we have a much longer potential to derive de residuals from due to the maintenance volumes of work that we continue to perform where we're always performing starts, we're always performing accelerations, we're always performing some speed endurance. It, it's simply a question of how it is performed. So in the case of the long to short, the greatest proportion of running that is done is special endurance. And in the, in the short to long, this special endurance is modified to split runs. So whereas in the long to short, you're performing, you know, these two times 600 or three times 400, what have you, they're continuous runs, 600 meters, 500, 400, etc. In the short to long, what is a very common derivative is to perform split 60s. So you'd perform a number of 60s, 60 meter sprints in a row, the total of which constitutes a similar distance to a single long to short special endurance run. So say you're performing four 60s as an example in a set, so four times 60, 240 meters in a single set. Now we know off the bat the intensity is going to be much greater when we look at that bell curve. So the way that intensity is modified is by performing nice. an intensity limit. Yeah. So if we limit the distance over which an athlete can accelerate, say to 10 meters or to 20 meters, and then finish out to 60, we know that we're able to limit the intensity over which they are sprinting. And this is, this is a great means of managing the intensity of the effort. So they'd accelerate to the cone, whatever it is, 10 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters, and then they would not attempt to accelerate any further, simply hold that velocity to the finish. And so these, these split 60s with intensity limits are the bread and butter for the short to long sprinter, whereas the, the all-out special endurance sprints are the bread and butter of the long to short scheme. However, in both cases, there's always starts, there's always accelerations, and it's only the question of maximum velocity, how that is approached, is more similar via most programs, be, be, or rather via both programs, because the short to long and the long to short are both working towards the performance of maximum velocity. And by the time you get there, the training of maximum velocity looks a little bit more similar between the two schemes. Um, just... To so with those split 60s, is it incomplete recovery, obviously? Correct. And, and, and again, that's in order to limit the achievable the intensity. intensity. Yeah. And as the weeks progress, those intensities become longer and longer and longer until, let, let's say the sprinter is going to compete in the indoor season, in which case a short to long program becomes almost mandatory because you're, you're preparing for the 60 meter event. Yeah. And in this case, that short to long sprinter is starting with these special endurance split 60s that eventually gradually, incrementally work their way to becoming maximum velocity yeah. 60s yeah. because the, the, the rest intervals just become longer. longer, 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 longer. So along with the increasing duration of the rest interval as well as the increased distance over which the sprinter is accelerating because those intensity limits are being set at farther and farther cones starting at 10 meters and working all the way out to performing the full 60 that intensification is occurring along the way and then over the course just with short to long there over the course of a weekly cycle would it be a case of you know how often would you, now I know it's going to change obviously in proportion the, the closer you get to competition but like so how often are you hitting each sort of spectrum there like how often is acceleration being hit and then how often are these split 60s done and is max velocity even in the window in the early part of the training cycle no so what both schemes have in common whether it's short to long or long to short is that maximum velocity is not being trained okay. initially in the GPP phase? 
because it, it is the highest intensity form that must be prepared for. Yeah. So the similarities are neither program is addressing maximum velocity initially. Okay. But, In terms. So so both so essentially short to long is accelerations with split sixties for for its uh, special endurance, and then the long to short has accelerations, but the special endurance is just straight three three hundreds or even up to six hundreds. Precisely. And, and can I just ask, like, six hundred seems very extreme for a one hundred meter sprint. Would a one hundred meter sprint be? Would they generally be more towards three hundred meter volumes? Would they? Certainly, and 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 the argument can be made that the hundred meter sprinter doesn't ever need to perform a fast running repetition much beyond. 100 meters. Yeah, I always thought 150 is kind of a lot of coach I speak, that seems to be where they go most. Yeah, certainly there's an argument to be made there that where the where the option comes into play, as you know, I go into some depth into this in in the applied sprint training book, regards the tolerance that individuals have. Yeah. To CNS stress the training environments they have access to, yeah. the climates in which they're training, all, all of these begin to shape. For example, yes, a 600 is extreme, particularly if we're talking about a 100-meter specialist. Yeah. As, as we know, a lot, a lot of our 100-meter sprinters are also doubling in the 200, 200 meters, yeah, yeah. In, in which case a much more profound special endurance requirement occurs. There, there is no special endurance demand in the 100 meters. Yeah. There is a speed endurance demand, but that must be distinguished between speed endurance and special endurance. Can, However, could, you, could you just briefly, while you do that, again for the listeners, can you maybe just explain? Because I knew when I was a beginner, I was like, what is the difference between speed and special one, special two? And, and it was only until again I saw Charlie's work, because Charlie's work is just so well outlined, like, oh, this is what it is. <laughs> so yes. maybe, just, maybe just touch on what exactly is speed endurance, special one, special two for the listeners. So. If you think of a, a sprinter starting from zero with the objective to run, to accelerate as fast as they can, to hit the highest maximum velocity, and to attempt to hold that, which of course nobody can, but to attempt to hold that as long as possible. So it's just sort of this concept of take off sprinting, start as fast as you t- can, hit the highest max V, and hold it as long as possible. If we if we were to graph this, and let's say we're talking about a really fit and a really fast sprinter, such as any of the world's elite, and we look at that slope, it, what it begins to look like is is that bell curve that I that I listed in the book, which is a graph from Charlie's work. Yeah. And so, if we start categorizing points on that curve and giving them names, we know we have the start, we have the acceleration, which there's different phases of. We have the maximum velocity. After maximum velocity, again, the words are less important than what is actually happening. We, we know that the intensity immediately begins to decrease after the point in which maximum velocity is hit. So what we refer to that as is speed endurance. How long can you hold on to the highest percentage of your maximum velocity and lessen the slope of declination? So when we look at the 100 meters, we know that no one can accelerate, hit the highest achievable maximum velocity to, to, at least not yet, to a point in which you've already crossed the finish line. So we know that even the fastest in the world who hit the, who hit the highest maximum velocities are still hitting that velocity prior to crossing the 100-meter line. Yeah. So when we look at what is the distance remaining, this is where speed endurance enters the equation. And the, the degree of speed endurance that can be held, which is to say, what is the highest percentage of maximum velocity that can be held and to what distance? This is where we use the word speed endurance and and the general accepted mark at which we stop calling 
it speed endurance and we begin calling it special endurance is somewhere between 120 and 150 meters. Yeah. And beyond that point, and again, we can see this on the graph, we know that either the intensity is going to begin to decrease so sharply, such, such as the graphic representation of the bell curve, because this is predicated upon someone running as fast as possible, is going to decrease very sharply. And so this is why we, we sort of change the scope of thinking into special endurance, because we know, for example, that a 400-meter specialist or a, an 800-meter specialist, these individuals cannot afford to accelerate as fast as possible and hit their maximum velocity in the same way because they would simply go through too many too, too, too massive energetic resources yeah. and they, they would die before they reached the finish line. So they have to moderate their intensity. So they're, they're not they're... attempting to accelerate as fast as possible. They're not attempting to hit the highest maximum velocity. So we, we sort of reshape our thinking into this context of special endurance, which constitutes the efforts that we associate with performing training reps in excess of 150 meters. So we look at the special endurance one from, you know, 150 out to 300, give or take, and special endurance two, anything beyond 300. So you can look at it in terms of distance, or you can look at it in terms of time. Yeah, you, you have a beautifully mapped out here on uh, <coughs> page 11, and also actually towards the end of the book on page 147, but Essentially, you have uh, speed endurance 80 to 50 meters, time wise 8 to 15 seconds, special endurance 1, 150 to 300, 15 to 45 seconds, and then special endurance 2, 300 to 645 seconds and above. So, I mean, it's, it, it just it just laid it out beautifully. It was just always sort of a. Because I remember, when, again, when I was a young coach and I, I was asking the coach, I was like, can you explain to me exactly what is the difference and what exactly are they used for, or yeah, just the semantics of it? So, it's just very, very good for the listeners to. To, to get you know to, to hear that and know exactly so when they go read it they know exactly what it means indeed and, it, and it's it, you know it's interesting you, you'll, you'll meet people who who have not looked into you, you'll meet people from the from the team sport coaching realm who have very little understanding of track and field and they, they might go so far as to think that short to long and long to short are simply reflecting the duration of the rest intervals for example and we know that there's much more to it than that. And, it, and, it's, and it's so important, again, because the, as, as I indicate the premise for this, for this book, is understanding just how valuable speed work is and, and the actual instruction of proper running mechanics for clearly track and field athletes. Yeah. And not limited to track and field athletes because the, the movement that field and sport, court field and court sport athletes perform the most is running and yeah. as you know it's ironic that the competency that exists with respect to the preparation of different types of running is very low in the team sport world Oh, it's it's not it's not existent in some team sports. It's 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 yeah. it's a crime. Like and uh, and obviously, in any of your writings and particularly in this book, I mean, you are such a huge proponent of just movement efficiency. It all comes back to movement. And uh, just before I, I go on to the next question, I was actually laughing to myself there when you when you were speaking about your next book and kind of saying that you know if people can understand it or if they if, they, if they're in a position where they have the foundation or understand it, I laugh because sometimes when I'm watching your lectures. <laughs> you always like there, there was one of your lectures where you're given that you just it's towards the end of the lecture and you go and uh, you, you said something like no is anyone feeling like they need to slit their wrists yet <laughs> I, just, <laughs> yes. I was just like jeez it, it was so funny like um but well, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing because we, we look at the, this, the course of events that is required or in many cases not even required but that simply exists in the, the history of someone becoming some type of a sports coach yeah. and, and a close examination of this indicates just how much dysfunction exists due to the lack of complete knowledge
knowledge and relevant knowledge that is conveyed towards these aspiring coaches. It, it doesn't matter whether you're whether you're an aspiring sport coach or performance coach or, or what have you. There's there's a very incomplete method of educating these individuals, and this is why, ironically, so much of the most obvious preparatory discussions, such as the ones that I center many of my arguments around, exist beyond the current awareness level of many coaches. And the, the frustration on the coach's behalf comes when they have the realization that so much of what is being said is, is so obvious yeah. because it's, it's simply rooted in observation. And then it becomes so easy for coaches to, to kick themselves in looking back in time thinking, I can't believe I overlooked this for so long, given the fact that it's so simple. Yeah, like it's, uh, it's uh, we alluded to this an awful lot in our previous podcast, um, you know, where you were speaking about, you know, Galileo and, you know, the, the sun being the center of the universe and like, he, you know, he was trying to go back and say, "Look, it's look through the telescope yourself. It's so obvious." <laughs> yes, and, and and again, it's simply rooted in observation. You know, because yeah. this, whether whether it was Galileo or a conversation occurring during modernity or or any time in between or before or after, you know, these conversations have been occurring since the beginning of time. Yeah, it, whether it was when the wheel was invented. To think about the sequence of events just prior to the wheel and the sequence of events prior to Magellan circumnavigating the globe to show that you won't sail off the edge of it and, and the sequence of events leading up to Galileo and his argument. It, it's happened since the beginning of time where you've had the status quo that has largely been developed and is a summation of less than critical thinking and more influenced by edict and dogmatic principles that have been carried forth. Well, this is what so-and-so told me, so this is the way it's going to be. And then concurrent to these happenstances, we've got advanced thinkers who are committed to using only good evidence yeah. and, and utilizing their intellectual property to make formidable statements that are that are just a little bit ahead of the status quo and it's, and it's happened since the beginning of time it's it's so funny you say that because currently where i'm at in my own sort of coaching career is exactly where you've kind of just alluded to in terms of i got into coaching first and it was real like you know there was an you know there was these people who were seen as very experienced coaches and you know had good material and, and all and and you know it's not like it's I've heard someone say it's not like someone isn't telling a lie if they actually think what they're telling is is right like so you know when, but then when you find out later through kind of more evidence based methods that what they're actually saying wasn't true but it wasn't that they were lying it's actually they just were ignorant to the actual facts but like uh, what, what, what I'm beginning to see now is like you know I, I got into coaching and it was real like people just did these things and and I've always been a person who questioned, but obviously there, there are certain aspects you're like, all right, that makes sense. So I kind of bought into it and, and then I just started doing it. And then I suppose after a while you get comfortable and you don't really reanalyze why you do something. And the more now I, I've kind of veered towards these kind of very well-respected coaches, the more I realize that all of them are very science-driven. Like they're so evidence-based driven, but they still appreciate obviously that the... The kind of quantum mechanics aspect of the universe and the and the kind of um, the, the the dynamic systems theory of of the the organism that is humans and the organism of the world like they still know that there's this sort of uh, unreliability to everything but yet they they still have this balance of evidence base and just like the likes of Dan Faf, Tom Tales, Gary Winkler, like guys I'm looking to now yourself, you're very sort of listen like observe here's physics here's biomechanics here's physiology and observe and like weighed up against the scientific foundation and then when you start to do that you start to realize jesus like stuff i was doing have has no evidence to back it whatsoever like I, i'm saying that, oh this we're doing this for this and it's like well i've not i've nothing to back that up with <laughs> whatsoever so it's just interesting you say that I, i've kind of gone more back to just hardcore science like i'm really reading anatomy and physiology books now whereas before you're reading like 
you know, fucking the twelve week powerlifting program kind of thing, and are like, you know, I find them benefits now more. Just, again, going back to hardcore science to kind of get more of a foundation to weigh, weigh stuff up against. So if you like, I'm trying to get my bullshit my bullshit detector higher. But it's just funny you say that. Well, absolutely, and you know, it's 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 amusing to many people. In that you know, I'm 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 by vocation a musician, and yeah, I graduated yeah. from Berklee College of Music, and I studied jazz, and it and it's only because I'm self-educated that I could have arrived at the conclusions that I did so long ago. Because anybody who's known me from the beginning of when I started coaching, I, I was saying these same things in 2003 when I was first being paid to coach athletes. It was no recent development, and the reason is because, ironically, as I was a student, as I was a music student, I developed, I began developing a library of physics books, because I've just always been so enamored with challenging my mind to think about concepts, whether it's from quantum physics or theoretical or general and special relativity, and, and, and probably more than anything, it's been this continued study of physics that has led towards the continuation of ideas that I have, you know, that the program management, which started when I was coaching high school American football, and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I wanted to touch on a comment you just made regarding the, the importance of, of measurement. Not too long ago, I was listening to a classical mechanics lecture from an MIT professor in, in which case he was elucidating the the edict in classical classical mechanics theory, which is to state that any measurement taken without knowledge of its uncertainty is meaningless. It's meaningless. And if only sport coaches were to adopt this framework of thinking alone, a paradigm shift would take place. Yeah, yeah. And and it's a it's a profound concept that if, if I present to you a a measurement, you know, whether it's in this form of time motion analysis or what have you, without an indication of the un, the margin for error, the margin for uncertainty, it's worthless. It's and worth. so, if you operate according to that paradigm of thinking, what you'll realize is that the near entirety of sport coaching edicts are meaningless because how much are you able to document or anybody else based upon their experience in sport coaching that conveys a, a semblance of information passed on by way of whether it was mentor or apprentice yeah. or a college professor or what have you that was delivered in such a way that accounted for the knowledge of uncertainty. Yeah. We rarely see this. Yeah. And so, so once again, it has paradigm-shifting implications. Oh, like 100%. 100%. Like I, as, I, you know, as I alluded to earlier on, the, the reason why I've gone back to kind of study more of the, the, the hardcore sciences, so again, like again, I'm studying anatomy, physiology, biology, and eventually I'm going to just try and get a basic good grasp of physics and chemistry is because I want more of a foundation to weigh stuff up against, you know, so that, so that I actually have a filter, you know, to, to make more sense in the world. Whereas I think, and you, you, you kind of just alluded to it there, you're getting a lot of coaches in the field who are doing stuff, but they just don't have that reference background. So it's, it's meaningless. Like they just they they are just they just don't have that foundation there, and I, I only like and I'm I'm only saying it kind of in such a passionate way because I've just realised over the last eighteen months to two years like I'm missing such a huge huge like thing here like this this I'm missing such a massive foundation from that I need from for to build more knowledge upon like, and um it's just it was a paradigm shift for me really like, to be honest um. But just finishing up here with, with the book, James. Uh, so, uh, like, the table of contents is beautiful. And what I really loved about it was when you got into the applied uh, physics and the applied uh, biomechanics and physiology. I suppose what I want to hone in out of those three is the, the biomechanics. I mean, the physiology is a lot to do with the bioenergetics and, and the physics. 
I mean, I'm no expert in that, but I'll let the people delve, delve into that. In it. And it's beautiful. It's called, you know, you call it applied physics, applied biomechanics, applied physiology. So you made it very practical for the for the readers. Um, something I just want to touch on too is that I had to laugh a few times in the book because you, you give you such examples that I give all the time. And I actually never got these from you. It was just so funny. It's like, I use these examples all the time. So like, one example was... Um, when you were saying about like the distribution of the biomolecular qualities in like a 100 meter sprint you were like you you kind of used the comparison of energy systems and i always do this like you know where like people go oh the start is just maximum strength and then it's explosive strength and then it's elastic reactive and it's like it's like a, it's like a light switch where one turns on and one turns off and just like the energy systems where you go from eight from the creatine phosphate to the glycolytic to your aerobic and i'm always like no if they don't switch off you're always utilizing every energy system at one time and you're always utilizing all biomolecular qualities it just depends on what activity you're doing depends on the dominance so like and you gave that example and i was like i always use that example of the energy system for the biomotors and then the way you use the like uh with the alactic threshold you're using like the the percentage of the previous submaximal operational loads as well i always use that just and the other thing as well i'm rambling here but the other thing too you were kind of talking about was when you're when you take any specific exercise like we all talk about training specificity and any it's very hard to get anyone exercise that hits specificity exactly on the head apart from the competition exercise and you were kind of saying like there's these there's these benefits and negatives to any exercise so some exercises will hit the bioenergetics and the biodynamics but they mightn't hit the biomotors others will hit the biomotors and hit the bioenergetics but not hit the the, the biodynamics and it's it's something i always try to try to allude to other people too and i've actually never seen it anywhere else but Maybe maybe I saw it from you before, but I just I, there was those three kind of experts in the book, and I was like, Jesus, that's exactly how I think. So obviously, I felt sort of like a, a kindred sort of spirit thing as, as I was reading the book. But um, just with with the biomechanics, then James, you yeah, outlaid it perfectly. And there's a few notes I made here. Could you speak about this idea of not sacrificing your triple extension for your body angle? You spoke about if you can't maintain a low angle, don't sacrifice it. Let yourself rise up, and it's more imperative to keep that uh, triple extension. Absolutely. So what we're looking at is what is necessary in order to amplify to the highest extent the athlete's ability to start and accelerate most rapidly. And the common mistake made is is encouraging an athlete to quote unquote stay low. Yeah. Now, what we see is if you if you do not have the output abilities and the requisite overall strength preparation, the athlete is going to sacrifice the ability to extend through the hips, knees, and ankles in an effort to stay low, and the result is they will bend at the waist. So in, in accomplishing staying low, they are in effect minimizing their force application potential by mitigating complete extension. And the thing is, this is nothing new. You know, we, in track and field, certain track and field circles, this has long since been known, do not attempt to force a position that you cannot achieve in its totality with good posture. Yeah. The, the strength posture, the force posture, the velocity posture relationships have long since been understood. From this we understand, from this we know that the athlete who's bending at the waist and sacrificing extension is not going to be able to accelerate as fast as the athlete who allows themselves to maintain a less aggressive angle of departure in favor of maintaining complete extension. So it's so it's again it simply comes from one of these irrefutable physics standpoints. In which case we're looking at the magnitude of achievable force into the ground and, and, and what is necessary to achieve that. And this is where we understand the implications of complete extension. And one of the analogies is in a vertical jump or any type of jump assessment. If, if we intentionally, in, if we instruct an athlete, okay, I want you to do a vertical jump, and we're going to measure it, or we're going to do a broad jump, or we're going to measure it, 
However, I want you to intentionally cut your extension short. I don't want you to achieve full extension at the hips. Well, what you'll find every single time is the inability to jump as high or as far. Yeah. So we ask ourselves, well, why is that? Because we're decreasing the amplitude of movement over which the speed, power, strength may be developed. And when we decrease that amplitude, we simply limit the achievable amount that may be generated. It's, it's irrefutable. And you gave actually a, a really good photograph of Tyson Gay, like to, to show the example of this sacrifice of staying too low and sacrificing triple extension. And, and as most people know, that's his weakest part of his race is, is his start. Well, that's been my, that's been sort of my hypothesis because I don't know anything about Tyson Gay's preparation that I could speak towards or criticize. But what we can observe is how he just continually over his career has really forced that low position and in the process sacrificed a complete line of extension. And what we see from the most, you know, people don't realize this, Usain Bolt is the best starter in the history of track and field. Now, he's received so much criticism, but the criticism must be context-specific and be directed towards his time of reaction. Because if you look at his ten, first 10-meter splits, he has, he has ran the fastest 10-meter splits of all time faster than Ben Johnson back in 1988 and and, uh, this just further points towards uh, the mind bending nature of what what that means because here we have this athlete who's so tall and contrary to the misdiagnosed criticisms in which case he has been somewhat slow to react in some of his races however his Velocity, his takeoff velocity and through the 10 meters has been the fastest recorded. Yeah. Now, if you look, it doesn't matter. If you look at these phenomenal starters, Maurice Green, Ben Johnson, Tim Montgomery, Asafa Powell, Usain Bolt, Johan Blake, all of them, the, the, the greatest starters of modernity working back in time, and you look at what they have in common regardless of their heel recovery, etc., every one of them, without exception, a complete line of extension, yeah. without exception. Yeah. So on the basis of that alone is why I utilize Tyson Gray as a point of, Tyson Gay as a point of criticism, is because he so often fails to achieve that complete line of extension in those first couple steps, and we have to then question the implications of that and draw the possible association as to why he is always troubled in that initial acceleration department. You know, in in that section of the book, you speak about the importance of the arms, and I know that that comes from Charlie, and Charlie was a big proponent of this impulse that the arms can drive. So, like, it, obviously, this this is an area that you you are a proponent of, which your which your athletes do in acceleration. You maybe just want to elaborate on that as well for the listeners briefly. Well, again, it you know, it on the on the basis of what is irrefutable, we know this. N- neuroscience has shown us this. If you tap your finger to your nose, the signal from the nose reaches the sensory cortex faster than the signal from the finger. This is irrefutable, and it has to do with the proximity of distance from the sensory cortex. Now, Charlie mentioned this long before neuroscience was able to show the world that, yes, the, pr- the proximity of sensory input relative to the sensory cortex has everything to do with the speed at which the signal reaches the sensory cortex. And so this is what Charlie was saying back in the early 80s before this information was available. And in that context, it's important to acknowledge, particularly in the case of sports scientific research, that in many cases, the, the, the coaches that are ahead of their time are also ahead of the science. 
and it has nothing to do with the science being wrong. It has to do with the logistics surrounding the ability of a scientific investigation being done on the requisite population. Yeah. So, you, you know, we can go back into the 1960s and show how the Soviet Union at that time was able to perform sports scientific research on the elite athlete competitors in that nation. However, so many other nations in the Western world cannot state that because the logistics surrounding it are just not feasible. Yeah. It's not feasible to go out and take the, the, the top U.S. sprinters or the Jamaican sprinters or whoever and say, okay, stop what you're doing. We're going to assess you in all these different ways. <laughs> it's just, it just doesn't work that way. Whereas in those communist regimes, it was not up to the athletes. So, you know, you move forward, and in most cases... The advanced thinking occurs in advance of the actual irrefutable scientific evidence, and then it's later the irrefutable evidence comes along, which then substantiates what your theory was prior to. It, you know, if, if I might go so far as to state that my theory of what I refer to as program management, that this has preceded anything that is, that is found in the research However, that in no way dis diminishes my confidence in stating it is the future, and it is based upon what will be irrefutably shown from an evidence-based practice in terms of the hard data. Just, just, just on that, I mean, it's happening already. Like, th th I've seen so many people lately through social media getting these jobs, and their job title is high-performance manager, and they're over all the teams. They're over the medical team, the strength conditioning team. The, the sport coaches like they're the head of it now so it's happening right and you know and it and it's time you know so before I get to the arm action you, you've you've opened the door to to something I've most recently been sharing in my consultation with sport I, I recently had a spot a, a consult with the the head the head basketball coach of one of the NBA teams and in it I, I said to him you know I want you to understand we are in the stone age of sport. Yeah. You, you know, you heard, and Robbie, you heard me mention this in a different context in our last podcast. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you lose this. You, you, you base It's funny because I listened back to our podcast today just to make sure I covered my bases. And one of the things you said in that was like, our industry is, is, a, is, a, is an infant. It's, it's not even a year old, you were saying, in comparison to other professions. And, and it, it is. It, it, and again, this is irrefutable because if we go, it, it's not to say that sport has not existed for three millennia because we can go back you know, over two millennia and look at the Greek, the ancient Greek Olympics and say, well, look, athletes were competing in wrestling and in throwing things and in running over two millennia ago. And that's just, that's just as far as recorded history goes. Clearly, we know that it happened before recorded history, but that we must make the distinction between what existed in terms of two people competing in an athletic way we must make a distinction between that and the concept of a profession, of an industry of sport. And so where we look at these professions and these industries of academic professorship of various realms in comparison, this is where we're able to say that professional sport is less than 100 years old. It's less than 100 years old because, yes, Gaelic football and rugby and existed in the late 1800s, as did the beginnings of basketball and American football. The professional industry did not begin until the 1950s, 1960s. I mean, yeah. look, look at the, mo the most recent development of, you know, professional rugby union. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking closer to 50, five zero years. So irrefutably, this conversation you and I are happening, having, everything that has happened since the last 50, 60 years is occurring during the stone age of sport. And, and so what I encourage to coaches of all sorts is to conceive what will these conversations consist of in 2,000 years. Yeah. Because we are the cavemen. We are the cavemen of sport. And the question is, which of us cavemen is a little bit more brighter than the others? And, and on the basis of that, we're, some of us are able to have conversations that are a bit more advanced than the others.
and and again, uh, we actually uh, on the previous podcast spoke about this. The, the 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 there's so many factors that go into why some people speak about these things and why other people don't. You know, so many re- developmental conditioning, the environment they grew up in, the society that they they grew up in and that they're from. You know, these have all uh these have all formed the person that this coach is, and that's why some people are the way they and not not. This, this is why people are the way they are but this is why some of these coaches the, these t- types of conversations or thoughts never even enter their realm of reality whereas other coaches I mean they do speak about this but you usually find that the coaches that do speak about sort of deeper views on the, the, the human performance profession they study fields that, that seem so unrelated to, the, to human performance in terms of sports performance but they're all related like like yourself you came from a musical background you studied physics Dan Fat is the same he looks at realms way outside the field for whatever reason I'm lucky enough I just seem to have this intrinsic drive to realise that everything is interconnected and I've always had interest in other fields outside of human performance but it's just something that always seems to happen whereas the kind of more if you like to say closed minded people and I'm not I'm not trying to belittle anyone I have complete empathy and compassion for why everyone is the way they are because one of my things is I'm a big epigenetics guy that the environment dictates an organism's expression but um, you know one of the reasons that, or you look at all these coaches that are a bit ignorant of these facts a lot of them are just like you know old school like you know just real narrow minded like lift weights sprint run and even sort of their life aspects is real like hard 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 and oh if someone you know if someone does something bad they're bad people instead of trying to understand why they've done it and like all these factors that make people who they are so i'm on a rant now but again I, we spoke about this in the previous podcast and we were on the same wavelength but uh it's it's always good to kind of get off your chest and speak to someone who can relate well and and, and, and by association my most recent lecture on global sport concepts pertains to epigenetics wow so you can have a look at that but yeah it's you know, you mentioned the interdisciplinary influence and, and those of us who are having conversations that are, that are more all-encompassing than others is because of the interdisciplinary influence. And this is something that was not available historically. Because if, if we think about a group of Neanderthals, they didn't have the opportunity to consult with the resident thermogenics expert in, how, in terms of how they might manage starting fires via means other than smashing stones together. Yeah, yeah. As we move forward in terms of the technical, technological advances of society, there's so much more of a basis for a profound influence from interdisciplinary study because even though sport coaching is in its infancy, We've got, we have profoundly more advanced developments in physics and evolutionary biology and endocrinology and a whole spectrum of scientific fields, which is why the individuals who we, who we know have had a more profound impact on the advancement of sport have been so heavily influenced by these peripheral domains that are so fundamental towards enhancing this peripheral domain of human performance. Because if you talk to an evolutionary biologist, if you talk to a chemist, if you talk to any realm of physicist who have no previous significant understanding of sport and you show them a sport competition, the way they will utilize their application of the scientific method will by and large result more profound preparatory solutions than one would currently find amongst a spectrum of sport coaches simply because of the way that a physicist looks at the world yeah. or the way that an evolutionary biologist looks at the world and in the, of course I've been most heavily drawn to physics in a variety of capacities more than any other science simply because there is no more fundamental examination of the physical world there's nothing deeper you cannot go deeper and on the basis of carrying that mentality towards sport coaching in my view 
you arrive at it at a very formidable level because if every individual involved in sport chooses to make their endeavor the most fundamental examination of the subject matter, you will invariably be led towards interdisciplinary influence from all the fields of science and psychology, etc., and arrive at very similar conclusions. And we are just recently beginning to see this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like if you look at like a lot of the greats, like the likes of Dan, the likes of Tom Tellez, the likes of Gary Winkler, all very scientifically minded. I mean, like Gary was a maths teacher. Uh, Tom, I, I'm really sure Tom, Tom has a big scientific background, and obviously Dan has is just studies a lot of scientific uh, material as well. Uh, Yuri Verkashansky, you know, very in depth in in uh, in the scientific realm as well in terms of trying to use math, you know, mathematics to sort of objectively look at. And developing specific strength qualities, and obviously, you know, developing human performance. Uh, Franz Bosch, very deep into the physiology and motor learning sciences. And then the thing is, then you get people that we we've kind of touched this. You get these coaches who have no background in these things, yet they they're held on a pedestal because they sell DVDs or books. And then they like go, oh, those guys make it too complicated. I I, I read I read that section in the book, and I just I couldn't understand his his section in the book so I just skipped it and went to the section that I could understand that was much better and that's the frustrating thing now because I you know like because you get these young coaches who are very pliable and you know very what's the word like they're they're easily manipulated and not not an evil way like manipulate's kind of an evil sound of word but they're very easily led I suppose um, towards somebody's characters and then they kind of you know if they don't get into a headspace where they finally realize I have to think for myself here and have some self-reliance, they end up then just being a, a parrot and repeating, you know, well, my mentor did it and, and he was very successful because he sold loads of books and had a gym and DVDs and, you know, did loads of speaking engagements. Therefore, like, you know, this is now my belief system. Whereas, you know, these people, again, who we've mentioned, who are trying to be objective and use the science that's there and, as you have alluded to, actually looked through the lens <laughs> you know Galileo just look through the lens and see for yourself yeah. uh, it, it, it's just it can be very frustrating it's, it's funny because I remember when I came across you first I was like holy shit this guy is really really angry <laughs> and I was like why is he so angry and then like as I got more into your material and then got to know Buddy and got to know Charlie and then I was like oh I, I can see I can see why James is and then because I remember you, you sometimes you were like oh, I'm fed up with coach I'm just going to consult and I'm like God like you know it's really kind of gets to him sometimes and then I've been through these periods and I'm like oh, you know some days you just feel like what's the point but then you just keep going you just keep fighting the good fight because there is there is that, that few out there who really appreciate what the likes of you do so well it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing Robbie because by and large the most influential person in a sport organization currently, with few exceptions, is still the head coach. And the problem is the qualifications required to become a head coach yeah. have everything to do sort of with previous sport results and very little to nothing to do with the mechanism of how those results were achieved. And this is where the distinction and the uniqueness of sport and a few other professions, in which case the human body is the vehicle, of, uh, is the medium. There's an exception. So, so whether we're referring to medical doctors, physiotherapists, performance coaches, technical tactical coaches, you name it, all of them have in common the fact that the human body is our medium. Yeah. We, 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 we are in one way or another affecting the performance of the human body. I have via the way of medical intervention, therapeutic intervention, or developmental intervention. Now, what we have the luxury of that no other profession has is the pliability, the adaptability of the human organism. So the, 
me- the, the reason why a human being can survive an incompetent medical doctor and a misdiagnosis or an incompetent physiotherapist in their misuse of therapeutic modalities, an incompetent performance coach in their overloading of nonsensical performance modalities, an incompetent technical tactical coach with respect to their unknowing of skill development in technical tactical substrates, an incompetent psychologist who does not understand the tools, the ways of disseminating and providing strategies to those who have yet to experience a volatile situation. All these things together, everybody's got the advantage of working with this adaptable system that so many other professionals do not because the human being and its adaptive capabilities can survive a misdiagnosis, can can survive mistreatment, can survive overload. We, we regenerate. We get a surgical procedure. We bounce back. We get chemical therapy, and we survive. Not in all cases, but in most cases. Now, and you might have heard me say this before, we, we go to any of these other professions, in which case such an adaptable system is not the medium through which we exact our trade craft. And what we see is, in so many other professions, these individuals would be exposed immediately. Because whether it's, whether it's in general contracting, and we're talking about damaging the, the, the foundation or the wall or the framing or the roof, it, it's, just, it's instantly observable, and there's no way to talk your way out of it. You have to start over. If it's in the culinary world of gastronomy, if the chef overcooks the protein, there's no coming back from it. The protein does not adapt. The steak, the fish, the chicken, the pork, it, it, it doesn't come back from that. It's ruined. Yeah. And, and, and we can go through the list of professions in which case these individuals who are in charge would be out of work immediately because they simply cannot rely upon the adaptability of their medium to cover for their incompetence. Yeah. However... The medical doctor, the physiotherapist, the performance coach, the technical tactical coach, the sports psychologist, everybody has this adaptable medium of the human body to compensate for their lack of competency. And that is what must be distinguished when we look at sport results. Sport results are in no way a direct reflection of the competency of the coaching staff. In no way. Because we understand the adaptive capability of the athletes, and all we need is a, is a moderately talented group of athletes who are driven by a culture to work hard to be successful in spite of poor medical treatment, poor physiotherapeutic treatment, poor performance coaching, poor technical tactical coaching, poor psychological preparation. All of these things can exist substandard and still be associated with a perennially dominant sports team. Wow, that is that's <laughs> that is honestly one of the best bits of just like well, I don't know a quotation or phrase. But that was an absolutely just amazing because I, 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 I can't say answer because it didn't it wasn't a question. But that is one of the best things I've heard someone say in terms of summarizing what is wrong in the field. Like that that's absolutely amazing. Like that's one of the best things that I've heard on this podcast or on this like on this website or this this like of all the podcasts I've done, that was amazing that that caption right there was brilliant. Well you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. My name is James Smith and I'm available for hire. (laughs) (laughs) Come here, we we've we've gone completely off topic so and I suppose we should start wrapping this up. We're coming up to two hours. But uh so just with the, with, with, I, I, what I want to touch on is we'll get back to the arms briefly and then just to, to wrap up on the show, I'd like you to speak about the hamstring rehab. Um, I know we could do a whole show on that and then the sports uh, or the specific work capacity that, that you and Dan Fast speak about. And then finally that question on the Olympic list for strength speed that I really want you to touch on. So just briefly with the arms, going back to Charlie and, and you were saying neurobiology and that the arms are closer to the brain. That's it for part two, guys. Make sure you check out part three when I put it out. But for now, take care, be well, and stay strong.